0: Hello, I'm Douglas Herbert. Uh, I'm a foreign affairs commentator at uh, the international news channel France 24 in Paris, and you're listening to Culture Matters.
1: When you're developing your international business, one thing is often forgotten cultural differences. The Culture Matters International Business Podcast does exactly that focus on international business and cultural differences. Chris and Peter guide you through the maze of business and cultural differences in every podcast episode. Get the global perspective here at the Culture Matters International Business Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Culture Matters Podcast. My name is Chris Smith and you're listening to Culture Matters, the podcast on international business. We are on episode 166. And if you have not subscribed to this podcast, you can do so right now in iTunes and that would really help. Thank you so much. Our guest for today is Douglas Herbert. Douglas Herbert, a native New Yorker who's lived outside New York for almost 25 years. In in France, his job title at France 24, the international news channel he joined in 2006, is chroniqueur. In Russia, where he launched his journalism career in the chaotic post-Soviet heyday of Boris Yeltsin, state media identified him as politologue. Which means political analysis. In Britain, he is more neutrally referred to as a commentator, while back in home in the US, he's a mere pundit, or worse, a talking head. Douglas has lived and reported in all these places, the US, Russia, France, Britain, and the Baltic States. In a 25-year career that has been a non-stop crash course in differing approaches to journalism and journalists across cultures. Along the way, he has taught a new generation of international students what it means to be an ethical journalist in an age of slight rule journalistic standards and rampant disinformation. Let's get right to the interview. Hello, Douglas. If I can see Douglas, by the way. Perfect okay good all right good to have you here um i, I know where you are uh, but people do not know where you are they might not even know what france 24 is so we'll get to that in a moment tell us a little bit about yourself if you want um where do you come from originally where are you now and a little bit of your cultural frame of reference which for me is something more than two weeks holiday in cancun for instance
0: <laughs> right so
1: focus a little bit on that please
0: i'm a little bit i suppose chris i don't know uh, a professional and a cultural chameleon and I often have trouble sort of figuring out myself where I identify. I'm I'm a native-born New Yorker. Your viewers, uh-huh. your your listeners might be able to tell a little bit from my accent. It's never gone away. Once in New slightly. York, always Just in New slightly. York. <laughs> slightly, okay. Maybe it's been flattened out over the years, but um, I've really been living out of uh, the U.S. and of New York City since, uh, since the late 90s, since January 1999. That's when I made a big leap across the pond uh, mm-hmm. in wearing my journalistic cap because I started my career as a journalist and I like to consider myself a journalist although that definition is very wide ranging and broad um I went to work um in London um after previous stints working in uh, in Russia I was a Russian specialist early in my career never went to journalism school I actually uh, did Russian and post-Soviet studies and language and literature so I came in sort of through that that backtrack as i tell my journalism students often you know i never went to journalism school yes it can help you but it's not really necessary there are many Mm -hmm. other roads there are many other roads into journalism the the prime one i guess being just curiosity asking a lot of questions wanting to know things constantly to the point of being irritating and annoying sometimes (laughs) but I, uh, i i leaped across the pond i went to um to cnn uh international in london which at the time was a hub for the business product production i did a lot of business shows um i stayed there for a little over five years and to cut to the chase since um 2004 i have been here where i am right now speaking to you today in in france basically based in the same general area in eastern paris around uh Republique, the uh the mm-hmm. square where they're known for all the big demonstrations all the time you're uh the canal saint martin so a very vibrant sort of if you want to see how paris is changing and france is changing this is a very good vantage to get a sort of bird's eye view of, of all of those changes away right. from sort of traditional western paris so i've been here since 2004 two years after i arrived here you're still following me uh mm-hmm. i'll get through this this resume yeah, line fine. go, go, on, go on. it's yeah two years after that i um I came to. I gave up my job at CNN, basically took a little bit of a leap to do uh, what I thought was going to be a sort of Franco-American uh, cultural project, maybe a radio show with a colleague who was also a fellow Francophile, also a journalist. Um, that never really got off the ground. I ended up doing translation work a while. I ended up uh, uh, doing a little bit of, uh, of teaching. And then, lo and behold, um, Jacques Chirac was president at the time. He had wanted to launch uh, a news channel. That would Mm -hmm. be the sort of francophone, francophile retort to the likes of BBC and CNN. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was to be called France 24. I was a little skeptical it was actually gonna happen, but I was literally sitting in a cafe, uh, proverbially trying to write the great American novel in Paris. That didn't happen. Uh, When all of a sudden, yeah, I heard this thing was launching. Uh, Next thing I know is I got off the ground with France 24 at its inception in 2006. Uh, 18 years later, I've been there ever since. Just celebrated my 18th anniversary. There, oh. hard to believe. Yeah, how fast time time flies. I've evolved to France 24, but it's an interesting channel because it's called France 24, and the idea being, like I said, it was meant to be uh, a francophone retort to CNN, meaning um there was a perception that cnn even the bbc had a had what the french like to refer to as an anglo-saxon agenda mm-hmm. uh in their reporting of the news an anglo-saxon outlook on the world with with sort of a focus on on the areas of the world that they, that they feel closest to both linguistically or culturally or or imperialistically mm-hmm. um with france um our focus at france 24 what's really i think made us different uh we don't have the resources of a cnn We're we're smaller uh, we don't have the resources of a BBC, but where we've been able to, I, I believe successfully, carve out a niche, uh, internationally is in covering areas of the world that are, we see as being undercovered in a lot of the other traditional international, uh, news channels and, and media. So what I mean by that is, um, the Middle East and Africa, especially Sub-Saharan Africa, also Northern Africa, the so-called Maghreb region, region, we're very, very hard focused on um and and cover those really uh in our news reports regularly covering stories uh out of you know places that don't get much coverage often on the cnn's or the bbc's or even you know al jazeera's perhaps a little closer to us in its outlook um geographically and and conceptually um Mm -hmm. but we do i think have enough of our own sort of um template uh, that we've been able to, to, like I said, successfully set ourselves apart from CNN because I think we're cognizant of the fact we can't compete with them, say, on American news in the American market. We're not Mm -hmm. going to compete with BBC uh, on British news in the British market or even the Northern European market. It's difficult. But I think that generally our viewership is scattershot. It's all across the map. Um, I often get, you know, uh, a lot of feedback on my Twitter feed and um, uh, emails uh, and whatnot from people all over the world. Literally, we have a very large listenership in India which, right. as you know, uh, has the largest English speaking uh, population right. in the world. Uh, yeah. First English speaking country. I guess a lot of people don't really think of that right off the tip of their tongue. A lot of people in Nigeria, Nigeria, think of this, you know, over 200 million uh, population in Nigeria. But we have tons of listeners there because a lot of them um, do have a common language. They also speak English. So yeah. in a lot of Anglophone African countries, the channel I broadcast on, which is mostly, not exclusively, but mostly the English language channel of France 24, uh, we get a lot of listeners in those areas across Southeast Asia. Also in Northern Europe, we have a lot of people in Norway, a lot of listeners in Sweden, a lot of people in Ireland. Um, so like I said, it's really scattershot, and I, I never cease to be amazed at the diversity of where our viewers are coming from. As, as a journalist at CNN, when I was in London, we were always our big conundrum our big dilemma was always, who are who is our listenership? Who's our viewership? Who are we, whom are we talking to when we go on air? Yep. Um, and we used to be told, imagine yourself as this sort of amorphous journalistic blob floating somewhere over Austria, <laughs> sort of central Europe. And you're sort of talking to all of them diffusely. And I couldn't quite get a, a handle on that. And sometimes at France 24, I have to be honest, it's even harder. Like I said, I'm a foreign affairs mm-hmm. commentator. I'm supposed to sort of be the person who crunches the news of the day for people. Not not really giving the factual. I weigh in a little bit with my point of view, an informed point of view, but I'm supposed to sort of give them a context and make people sit up and say, you know, why do I care about this story? Why should I be listening to it? Why shouldn't I zap channels right now and start watching BBC or CNN? Mm -hmm. So I, I approach it that way. And rather than thinking of whom am I talking to, where are they? I think of sort of a family member. I think... What would I say on the phone right now if I was speaking to my my grandmother, my older grandmother, and then she was saying, what's happening right now in Russia and Ukraine? And yeah. I had to sort of gather my thoughts and not dumb it down, she's a very smart person, was, she, she died, but, and, and think, how would I explain this to her in a way that will make it compelling for her, interesting, anecdotal, and bring home the sense that this does actually make a difference in her life, even if it seems like some far away, far flung, remote conflict. Right. So that's my job, and at Trans24, I've given up trying to identify whom I'm supposed to be talking to. Am I talking to someone sitting in there, um, you know, in in, in somewhere in central Djibouti? Am I talking to someone uh, in, you know, in Goa, India? Am I speaking to someone uh, on the outskirts of Oslo in Norway? Am I Mm -hmm. speaking to someone on the, uh, you know, on the west coast of California? We have a lot of listeners in California. So like I said, I give up and I try to boil it down to a sort of, if I can, in a news sense, a lowest cultural common denominator um universal truths that I think will draw people into a story regardless of where they're listening. And of course, Chris, I'd be lying not to tell you, of course we do stories which are more sometimes targeted to one region than another, in which case I do assume perhaps more people in a certain region will be listening to this analysis, this yeah, story, yeah. and I'll perhaps have a certain level of assumption that some viewers know certain basic facts about the story, but I still try to bring the fundamentals in mm-hmm. i still try not to assume too much and this is where the cultural i guess guesswork comes in what is a lowest cultural denominator in journalism how do you give uh across cultures what we might call a nut graph in american journalism we call the nut graph which is supposed to be that succinct one or two line paragraph where you say oh by the way this is why you're reading this story this is what this story is about mm-hmm. um, And that's essentially what my job has boiled down to for the past, you know, 18 or so years uh, at France 24. Um, I travel a lot, not as much as I used to, perhaps pandemic put a hold on a lot of the uh, the travel. We're just getting back up to speed. But, you know, I cover a lot of G7, G20 summits, a lot of that big summitry, big international meeting stuff. But in the past, I've also done stuff I've been to, you know, eastern Ukraine, not in this time around. In the last time, 2014, I went on several, several assignments over to both Donbass. I was in Crimea shortly before the annexation, days before the annexation there. Um, So I try to cover a lot of bases. I covered recently, you know, when when Biden was inaugurated, I I go to the U.S. for a lot of the U.S. political coverage. We're looking ahead to the midterms there. So I have
1: it's not only only Russian or or Russia or the Russian speaking the the ex-Soviet Union, if you want.
0: I, I, Chris, to be honest, I don't have the luxury of being able to only concentrate as as a as a commentator at an international channel like France 24. I can't just concentrate on Russia and the former uh, Soviet republics mm-hmm. and 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 Ukraine. I I can't do it. Obviously, uh, the the headlines lately have been dominating out of that region, and I have mm-hmm. been doing a lot. Yeah, obviously, I've been doing a lot. on on the ukraine russia conflict but you know i constantly find myself circling back to the european home front even becoming putting on my my former business cap i used to be a business financial reporter for several years so obviously now gas energy markets all of that you know constantly back back my business cap all of that on and when i speak about the us as well you know Zeroing back in on U.S. markets. What's going on right now with the, uh, with the jobs market there, with inflation there? Uh, you know, how is Biden being perceived with energy prices? Gas prices were coming down. Now they're going back up. How's that politically going to impact the midterms? So there's a lot of variables constantly circling around in my mind, which I'm trying to factor into my coverage, but I mm-hmm. do not have exclusive domain on Russia, Ukraine. I am a, a, yes, I trained as a Russia, Ukraine, uh, Russia specialist way back when in the 90s and late 80s. However, I, um, I, I started out earlier in the U.S. in high school studying French and my first cultural experience had nothing to do with Russia. It was uh, two summers of a home exchange experience in southwest France. Uh, in the French wine country, in uh, around uh, an area called the the Latte Guerin region. So I started out really as a francophile. Where did the
1: interest come from? I mean, being an American, and I would I would call it an, an enlightened American who has actually stepped out of the country and and has seen different areas. And from from your LinkedIn profile, I saw that you have three passports or three at least three, <laughs> three language, a, a American passport, uh, identity by birth, a British and a French passport. Right, not six. I'm not going yeah. to ask how how you got those. That's not the point. The point is more, how do you get that interest? And do you speak all these languages then? I mean, and yeah. do you speak Russian in this case?
0: I speak Russian. Yeah, I studied Russian early on and, uh, and I've kept it up uh, ever since. I might not be as sharp as the days when I was actually living and reporting in Moscow in the mid 90s and early 90s, but um, I still have a very good um, working knowledge of Russian written and spoken, um, and French, obviously I live here. So yes, I have, you know, uh, your native fluency now in French, but, um, you know, my interest, it's funny because in the U S it was, it was a joke when I was growing up, I grew up, you know, in New York city, I grew up on the upper East side of New York city. Um in you know, and I was very lucky I had, you know, I was fortunate as a child, I had a lot of opportunities presented to me both culturally and travel wise, my family were, you know, were travel fiends, we, as a young kid, even I have pictures of myself in London before I even had memories of it standing by the beefeater guard, it's a little annoying that you can't remember any of that. But so from an early age, I think I picked up the travel bug from my parents. They used to host students from the United Nations, which is obviously based in New York. We'd have them regularly over to dinner. I was exposed to people from a lot of different countries. So I was always, I guess, from an early age, very um, uh, attuned to the fact that even though New Yorkers love to think of themselves a little pretentiously as being the center of the universe, um, I was very much aware of the fact that, no, we are not uh we are not the center of the universe there is a giant universe and galaxy out there and Mm -hmm. uh and and a lot of world and i saw that when i traveled um and i said i wanted to do this myself you know and back then back in the uh when i was a kid growing up late 70s 80s um it was you had a choice of two languages in school spanish or french we didn't even go into the exotic languages i say in quote like german you know let alone (laughs) russian get russian (laughs) Uh get dutch dutch off the charts you know Uh Spanish or French. I ended up taking French and um, I was I was bitten by the French bug. And like I said, because I was fortunate, because I had opportunity, I got to do this early exchange program in the southwest of France. I was plunged into a living experience in a family in the uh in the wine region between Toulouse and Bordeaux, um, a family that spoke zero English, um, you know, basically plucked down there in the middle of uh, you know, the vineyards and the sunflower fields and the chateau and forced to learn French, uh, you know, a crash course. Literally immersion. And uh, I absolutely loved it. I, I saw the world differently coming back. I know that sounds cliche. And no, and I understand. Very much, yeah. You know, I, you know, who, oh, another person who's had his early uh, cultural exchange homestay experience and came back and his life was transformed. But it really, it's a cliche for a reason. It really does change your perspectives in it your does. life. especially for someone like myself, you know you, you could tend to oh, you grew up in a big city, you're already exposed to so many cultural opportunities and theater and arts and culinary and all of that. And it's true. But this was very different on a different scale. and I think experiencing that, I came back knowing that I needed to keep doing that. I needed to mm-hmm. sort of slake. I had a new thirst. I had to slake my thirst for these experiences. I went back to France, I started intensifying my study of French, um, and I even went to university originally with a French minor. I wanted to really continue studying French intensively with perhaps the goal of trying to find something journalistically in Paris. I ended up going in, like I said, to the back door, not through Russian, through French. I did a travel Mm -hmm. guide. I did -hmm. a travel guide that had been published by where I had been a grad student at, at Harvard graduate schools. Um, I was studying Russian, but I did a travel guide in France in the early 90s, uh, Let's Go France. It was a budget student travel guide where I covered 50 towns and villages. And- I don't know the Let's Go
1: series, yes. I used yeah, that you know that. When I was in the States, yeah.
0: It's crazy, right? You know, yeah. everything's a blur. Everything's a blur. You know, you're sitting up till three in the morning writing your copy. Back then, I wasn't. I didn't have my laptop computer, sending it into uh, to Harvard Yard for for editing every night. Um but it was it taught me it was an er, it was an early experience and it was sort of a pseudo journalistic experience in that i had to meet deadlines i had to write every night i had to spend the entire day doing so called reporting which in the case of a uh, travel guide is researching visiting museums restaurants asking people how's the food how's that how's that steak uh you know how's the entrecote? all of that and coming back and writing it up and making it interesting for readers so it was an early journalistic experience and one thing led to another and the linguistic thing just came along with it uh chris because at university i started intensively studying russian but that led me in my junior year which in the u.s is your third year of university um Mm -hmm. i went to study in moscow i was one of a one of the the first groups, really, uh, American groups to, to study at a big then-Soviet uh, institute. It was called mm-hmm. the Moscow Energy Institute. We were like zoo animals. We may as well have been in cages because we all had our own little dormitory. We were uh, all confined together. Twenty-five of us in a, in a Soviet university of twenty-five thousand students, many of whom had never met an American before. They came like curiously, wanting to meet us and look at us and see what we were like, you know. And it was fascinating from from both perspectives, you know, me being mm-hmm. able to see them and breaking down, shattering the walls of the cliches about, you know, Russian and Soviet students and and them seeing that, hey, you know, we were normal people just like them. And Indeed. and so all of that. All of that. And I think that the combination of those early sort of cultural exchanges, the linguistic experiences, I came out of grad school, I'm saying, well what do I do with this? I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a doctor, I don't have special engineering training, I'm not a mathematician or a scientist. Mm-hmm. So you do what everyone who has no skills does, right? You go into journalism. But except <laughs> there are they are skills. It's just not scientifically identified right. as such and that's why I guess we have journalism schools because we need I guess journalists need a way to sort of explain to themselves that we are a science in a way we can study the mm-hmm. so-called rules of journalism. But the fact of the matter is, at least in my case, I find that if you have that basic curiosity and the determination, uh, you can teach yourself a lot of those tricks of journalism. You just have to, the trick with journalism is you have to just do it, (laughs) and you do it. And before you know it, and I I know that sounds like, what does he mean just do it, easier said than done. But I mean, I, I guess I did learn on the fly. A lot of my early copy, a lot of the stuff I did early on when I look back on it in Russia, uh, even here in France, it's a little embarrassing. I mean, you know, I was a real uh, rookie. I was, I was mm-hmm. absolutely completely green, and I was, you know, myself the, the way I wrote, the, the way I structured, the way I did my reporting. It wasn't really what I would call the quality that I would like to put into reporting today. But I, you learn it on the fly, and yeah, hold course, and, and you hone it.
1: And you oh. you see yourself back again, and you learn from that. Um, as well now there's a there's a, a here's a question you can there's a saying that says you can take the say the american out of the united states but you cannot take the united states out of the america this pertains to you then uh, same goes for me being a dutchman by the way living in paris myself at this moment um how do you okay it's, it's a it's a two-tiered question how do you get your news and how do you how do you filter out your also, your Anglo-Saxon upbringing, which you yeah. cannot
0: really eradicate, I guess. You cannot. You cannot. And I, you know what? To be honest, I don't even try to do it. Um, coming from coming from this school, uh, even the, the school in the generic sense of American journalism, there's this conceit, if I can call it that, in American journalism of pure objectivity. That some of the world's, you know, best paper, you know, the New York Times, which I love. I adore the Times. I had worked for it as a freelance writing researcher in Russia early on and back in New York on the Metro desk as a a freelancer. Great paper, but there is sometimes there is this conceit that you can be truly objective. And I think cultural bias is, is built into everything, into every report. And if I had sort of identified the major delineator, say, between... The uk where i worked um uh, and 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 the us as far as journalism is concerned um it's that the uk a lot of their journalism they don't have that conceit like a paper like the guardian will call itself a progressive newspaper they will wear that badge proudly and they know that they have a progressive bias so to speak it doesn't preclude them from being able to report objectively and factually whereas i think the new york times would more um, shun labels. If someone were to say, oh, you're there, this left wing paper, I don't think they would they would appreciate that. So I mm-hmm. think there's more of a, uh, of a, you know, wearing your cultural bias, uh, wearing your your even your, your leanings, your political leanings on your sleeve in, in, in certain journalistic schools. For me, I don't filter out the US. I'm going to be American, even if I have this pretension. Uh, of not being American when I give my reports, people are going to listen to me. They're going to hear me speaking. They're going to be saying, "Oh, there's that American guy again." It doesn't matter what I'm saying, mm-hmm. how I'm reporting it. Of you course. are what you are, and I, I actually I, I would disadvise against trying to shed all of that. You know, it's going to be built into you automatically. I would say that the the cardinal rules of journalism are just to be fair and balanced and free, and do your and do your your homework, do your fact checking. That's the most important thing. When I go back to the U.S., the irony is. When I go back and visit New York, as I do, you know, a couple of times a year, um, I'm now seen as being more European, more French. Uh, you know, having gone native a little bit over there, I even find myself using words when I speak to, you know, family and friends back there. You know, I'll say, oh, when I was at university, no one in America says university. They say when I was at college. But mm-hmm. I find myself sometimes in my language using more a Europeanized English than I would if I were back in New York. Sure. Uh, and. And conversely, when I'm over here, um, you know, I'm often still seen as, you know, as American or a New Yorker in Paris, even though, as he said, I have French nationality You know, I speak fluent French. I mm-hmm. think, you know, almost no matter how, how long you've been here, those biases are going to be with me. I think I'm a little bit of everything and I'm never completely going to be culturally, uh, I don't know what even culturally pure means, you know, wherever yeah. I go back. Um, Right now, I I think I've become sort of a little bit of that chameleon. And when I'm in Russian, obviously, I've never, you know, lived long enough in Russia to ever go native with Russian. Um, But in Russia, I do also find myself picking up a lot of the ways of thinking and the ways of doing things when I'm over there. Um, that would be sort of more attuned to that culture um so that 's what I mean by the by the cultural chameleon. I shed sort of certain parts of my cultural skin when i 'm in certain places, and I'm sure this will be something familiar to a lot of to a lot of your listeners who are used to either traveling a lot for business yep. or having studied or worked in a lot of different places. You do become a slightly different person, and you even have i'd go so far as to say. Different friend and professional groups of people, um, that your personality is almost slightly different with. Uh, the French Doug is maybe a little, it's not being false or phony. It's that the French Doug might be a slightly different Doug. The Douglas Herbert is a uh-huh. little different than back in New York, Douglas Herbert, or, or in Russia, we're on Douglas, you know, Douglas Herbert, you know. It's like uh-huh. I'm a little different and your personality does make a little bit of an adjustment. And part of that might even be based in the fact that just by virtue of speaking a different language, a different way of using a language forces a, a slight tectonic type of shift in the way you communicate, even in the way you think. I perhaps even think on a certain level differently when I'm speaking French than I would think when I'm speaking English. You're not giant. No, 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 I understand.
1: It's it's, a, it's yeah. the same thing that I mean. The research also has has indicated if you and this is the example they used. If you say "I love you" in your native language, it has a, brings up a lot more emotion than if you use a foreign language. English being yours, French being not your your native native, even though you might speak it fluently, it's um, it's like that, that, and 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 we we do adapt. Um, at least I, if I look at myself, I lived 15 years in Belgium, and now I'm in Paris as a Dutchman. And sometimes I find it very handy to be Dutch, to be as direct as the Dutch are known for. Yes. And oftentimes I go back to the Netherlands because I've got some family there. And, and it's a, I'm surprised by their rudeness, the directness. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. It's good to be back, but it's also good to leave again. You know, um, if you don't mind, Douglas, I'd like to make a bridge with something in terms of what what is journalism and, and uh, talk sure. about fake news for, for a moment. Uh, I
0: hate the term. I hate the term. I, I know. I, it, I like that, alternative
1: yeah. truths. I don't understand that either. What's an alternative truth to graffiti? It is there. So uh, how so do you, you. So the question here is, is is not so much what is your take on fake news, but how do you. Yeah. How do you avoid that? How do how do I know as because I I got in touch with you watching you on TV on French 24. Um, and then you, you were kind enough to do this interview, but how do I know when you're giving your your well your informed opinion? You say about say what's going on right now in Ukraine. And by the way, we're recording this October 11, 2022. For those of you listening in the future, um, how do I know that what you're telling me, as in your professional situation, is 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 good, is true, is is not the, an alternative truth or fake news? Huh?
0: Off the cuff, at first blush, you don't. You have no. no idea, knowing where I'm coming from, what my, if I have one, my hidden agenda is, is what I'm constantly telling. I taught at a science journalism school for, for, for many years, a fact checking course and, and, and checking the reliability of sources. And I basically said, you don't know. I always started my first class with them. I came into class the first day and I, I started speaking to them and I said, stop. I said, how do you know I am who I say I am? How do you even know I'm your teacher? I said, and yet I said, well, I don't know, our teacher for this course is Douglas Herbert. Uh, he's teach, he's from France 24, he's teaching a fact checking course. How do you know that's me? How do you know I'm not some imposter walking into the room and, sure. and starting to teach you anything? I mean, it sounds a little ridiculous. I tried to sort of boil it down to absurdity, but you know, just to get them thinking about, you know, yeah, you have to do these days, you have to do fundamental fact checking about everything. You know, I can Absolutely. be a total, I anyone out there can be a total fraud Look. There are a few basic things in journalism. They always tell you, even before the era of you know of, of cyberspace and Twitter and, and so-called fake news. I hate that term. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like to use maybe information pollution or disinformation mm-hmm. or misinformation uh, because fake news is too politically charged, in my opinion. But um, basically, I, I what you need to do is you you need to go back to to the very basics. You're only as good as your last story. They used to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in other words, if you've had a, a a spotless, absolutely squeaky clean record for 20 years of your journalism career, but then you screw up badly on one story, that's what everyone's going to remember you for. And that's what you might actually be sacked from your paper, radio or TV station for, um, which is why, you know, journalistic credibility is 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 always, wor- um, you know, active in real time. My credibility is only as good as my last commentary. Um, so, if I go on the set, can I say anything I want? Can I, you know, just start blah, 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 and, and just mouth off and, and, and spew out misinformation? Of course I can. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be an abuse, obviously, of all journalistic deontology, as they call it, um, journalistic ethics. Um, mm-hmm. But beyond that, my viewers, and, and my viewers are very smart. Uh, They're often many steps ahead of, uh, of where I am on the news front. They're all over social media. They'll call me out very quickly. They'll be all over social media saying, that Doug Herbert who I just watched, he is full of it. I just heard him say A, B, C, and D. Let, let me tell you the truth. So I have to, you know, both myself, because I know my viewers are sharp and eagle-eyed uh, yeah. and, and listening very closely to everything I'm saying, I have to be uh, true to myself. I have to make sure that I'm as accurate as rigorous in what i am saying on air as possible because if my credibility starts to go if my credibility is shattered that's it it's it's a slippery slope You're, you start sliding very quickly down sure. that slope yeah. uh, and it takes a long time uh, to work your way back up it's 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 a time in the wilderness to to work yourself back up to gain the credibility again so the onus is on me um to be as factually correct and rigorous i am of the school that like I said, I'm a commentator, which in my opinion means I do give a sort of point of view and analysis on the news of the day, which um, implicitly there's some of my opinion in there, but I call it, um, I guess, informed opinion. Uh, mm-hmm. Perhaps it sounds a little ludicrous, but the term I like to use is objective opinion. Uh, contradiction in terms, but what sure. I mean by objective opinion is that, it, yes, it's my opinion, but it's an opinion that I'd like to think is based on a lot of research, a lot of cross-checking of sources, not just one source, two or three sources, making sure that before I say, as the French would say, n'importe quoi, just anything on air, um, Mm -hmm. I am pretty damn sure that I have my stats right. Um, So I have to double and triple check. And I've known, because I've made awful mistakes on air in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, I've I've made some really bad mistakes, and I think the most important thing is, in this age, as you say, of fake news, is if you do, If you're called out on something, own it, recognize it, Um, make your correction uh, and your acknowledgement of the error as clear and as visible as possible. Be as transparent as possible. Mm. Because if we're all fallible, journalists are fallible, even well-meaning, determined, perseverant, diligent, diligent journalists. They are well-meaning. Journalists hate making mistakes. It's horrible. It's an awful feeling. It's their career. Uh, be transparent and own it. That's what I do try to do. And I try to, I, you know, if someone calls me out, I say, absolutely. Thank you very much for pointing that out. Um, I neglected to do this or say this, or sometimes they say you said this out of context, which is also true. It's information which is technically true, but because you don't give it in a proper context or you leave out some other pertinent information, it is essentially very misleading and comes out seeming like fake news. Um, so this is my constant battle it never gets any easier Mm -hmm. there are certain subjects which time and again no matter what you say you're not going to please everyone I look for that sort of journalistic balance I hope I get both sides of an issue or however all of them sort of chewing me out and telling me that I'm full of it because if I have both sides it means perhaps I'm somewhere right in the middle there Um, but this is a constant problem I try to use a, a diversity of sources you know you don't just read your, your, your one online paper, you know, and more and more these days with telegram, I try to with Ukraine, Russia, you have to rely on telegram sources, you have to look at the channels you're using. I'm also very careful, I try to follow a lot of follow sources as a journalist that you don't agree with, you know, that you personally have you know that you have to, you know, yeah, I follow all the the far right politicians here in France. I do know I don't subscribe to their political agenda. But I want to know what they're saying. I want to be up to date with what they're saying. And I want to get those Twitter updates. Um, So I make sure that I cast a very wide net in who I um, who I follow on Twitter, but that I'm also cognizant of the profiles of who i'm following so when i get a piece of information whether i'm getting it off of twitter whether i'm getting it off of say some of the online platforms here sometimes there are things in france like brut or, or loop cider uh, which are short videos with little mm-hmm. information nuggets who took that video do they have an agenda where were they posting are these legitimate people uh so always i'm always asking constantly yeah. what is the source? What's the source Where where's it coming from how long has this account existed uh, do these people have a hidden agenda? It's very, very important. Very
1: important. It's, it's something that I, my youngest daughter, who is now eighteen, is studying. Um, well, she's half Indian and half Dutch, but she's studying now in the Netherlands. Grew up in Belgium. Now she's back in the Netherlands, um, and that's what I tried to, to teach her from 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 young uh, when she was young. Just uh, think for yourself, because if you don't think for yourself, somebody else will think for you, and hence you will fall into that trap. If I if I can use this this bridge, I have about three questions left. For You um, uh, so uh, making that since you are well, I would say an expert at least, you speak the language you understand. Uh, and when I'm talking about Russia, Ukraine, former Soviet Union, um, I have a personal interest in that because my my partner is from the Soviet Union, uh, living in France, is, is French now, but is born in Russia or the Russian Federation, grew up in Azerbaijan. Wow. Chris, and, you know, we,
0: we call that burying the lead, you buried the lead that's that's interesting information. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm
1: sorry. But that but no, 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 it's it, so how do we how do we know because it's a bridge from fake news to real news? How do we know what to, or how to make make sense out of this? I mean, we I think I think we know I, that I, I think we know that the Russian people know not much about what's going on some do evidently but the majority don't. Um, how do we know what's going on whether that makes sense? how do we get our right off? evidently from France 24 but uh, how, what other sources could we could we use to actually understand what's going on and making sense of this whole yeah. mess that's going on?
0: You know, I try to use a lot of primary sources as well. I mean, you know, yes, you can scroll through the feed of of the key of independence, which is, you know, I think a good paper. They've been doing yeoman's work in this in this war reporting from but clearly, obviously from a very clear Ukrainian bias. That's not to say, by the way, there's no false. I hate false equivalency. It's not like on the one side, Ukraine says on the other side, Russia says it's not a 50 50 thing in the information sphere right now. There is a lot more all war has disinformation yes all war has both sides yes. both militaries trying to put out there, dump their fair share of disinformation misinformation to try to get military advantage and an information advantage we know that information ops all of that but i hate false equivalency in the sense of assuming that every side has absolutely equal legitimacy there is a lot more and i have to really underline several times a lot more disinformation Coming from the Russian side in this war than from the Ukrainian side. I can say that almost factually. That's not really mm-hmm. Doug Herbert giving his opinion. Um, I watch regularly, um, as often as I can, um, either clips of or as much as I of, of Russian state news. I watch it to see what they're saying. I want to know if I'm. Of an older Russian generation sitting down, maybe over you know 100 million, 80 to 100 million Russians sitting down every night watching Pyatovy Kanal, the first channel, getting their state-run, state-controlled news from their primetime news. What are they hearing? What are they learning? I watch it to know what's coming out of there, and it is a lot of it is absolutely ludicrous. A lot of it either completely ignores—I mean, ignores anything that's going on on the other side of the battlefield, um, any of the setbacks on the battlefield, um, which is why these recent uh, counteroffenses by Ukraine, it's its quite a story that the Russians are actually now forced to acknowledge all of this, and even mm-hmm. on state TV, they're forced to ask questions about what's going on on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Even, even the virulent, toxic, industrial-strength propaganda of Russian state TV cannot ignore it anymore. Um, that said, I have found that the... The the uh, institutes that study war and battlefield formations, um, and some are government agencies as well, like the British Intelligence Agency, which puts out a daily report on what's going on on the battlefield, uh, Russian-wise. It's a nonpartisan uh, report on mm-hmm. what's going on behind the lines, what do they think, you know, how is uh, is Putin on the back foot, what's going on within the Kremlin, it's a pretty good as real-time as you can get intelligence assessment. You have things called the ISW, the Institute for the Study of War, a US-based think tank which does great work showing you real-time battlefield analysis and situation, the latest strikes on both sides, uh, showing you really the lay of the land in terms of uh, rockets and missiles being uh, struck. How is the front line shifting? Where are the the newest holes in the front line? Uh, who's pushing back whom? Who's making advantage advances? What's interesting, even if you and if you read those types of reports, you don't just hear one narrative. You don't just hear that the Ukrainians uh, in recent weeks and months have been making a lot of advances along the northeast front around Kharkiv and even um, more incrementally along the southern front. Uh, Uh, in the Kherson area. You're Mm -hmm. also hearing also that the Russians, they have a mighty military machine. Yes, they may be having trouble getting troops and they may be having trouble getting ammunition, but they can still throw a lot of munitions on the battlefield and bring a lot of heavy machinery to war. You're still hearing they're still making advances in the Donbass uh, in eastern Ukraine, in in that region. It might not be Anything near as uh, spectacular as we've seen on the Ukrainian side, but at least we're getting that information. We know it's happening. It's not being ignored. Um, whereas the Russians, they, um, up until very recently, they knew almost nothing about the real state of play with the Ukrainian forces. It Mm -hmm. really was as cliched as it sounded in Putin's, you know, addresses. Basically, Russia was waging war against Ukrainian Nazis out to uh, out to basically attack and endanger Russia's uh, Russia's very existence and its national security. And only recently has that narrative shifted a tiny, tiny bit in Russia. So um, for me, getting fake news, I try to go as much as I can to primary sources. I try to use sources across uh um, a wide range of, of, of places, uh, try to use sources from the places that are actually experiencing the conflicts mm-hmm. themselves. You know, uh, trying to I try to read Russian papers. Uh, you know, I, I look a lot at um, papers like Komersant. Um Before it was pulled off the air, I used to listen to Echo Moskvui, Echo of Moscow, Great Station, which was unbelievably allowed to remain on the air for quite a long time. They've been trying to get back on. Um, and uh, I read things like Medusa, which, yeah, um, the Russians think it's a biased, uh, enemy of the people. It's called a foreign agent. They have to label themselves as an imestranii agent, a foreign agent in Russian. It's ridiculous. They are a bunch of very good journalists who used to be based in Moscow and have had to re- relocate to Riga, Latvia, and now do online editions. Very good in Russian and in English, uh, and they have very good, reliable information. Uh, BBC Russian Service even our france 24 our sister radio station uh radio france international they have a very solid russian language service i read a lot of their reports mm. uh, and these are reporters who aren't just sitting uh, isolated holds up in their little uh journalistic cubicles in 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 the suburb of paris writing their reports they're going uh to the terrain and they're seeing it uh, you know we we recently had a journalist come back who was based at Franco-Russian? Who was based in Russia for ten years, and and finally came back to Paris because of circumstances there. But these are people who know what's going on. They've been, you know, very, very well trained. They've been, they've been following the situation. Um, they're not looking at it through rose colored glasses. And uh, I just think you have to be very careful of your sources. You have to use a diversity of sources and yes. know what you're looking at. And it doesn't mean, I love reading propaganda sources. I love reading the disinformation, but I do it knowing exactly what these sources yeah, are now, where they're coming from, you know? Yeah. And that that's also very interesting in my commentaries. I love doing commentaries on, if you're a Russian right now, you're turning on your primetime news, it's 8 p.m., you're, you know, having dinner. What are you hearing tonight? What are you learning about? What do you know about the war tonight? you know these these are fascinating okay. stories
1: how is this thing going to end i mean it's a hypothetical it's not even well it's a hypothetical question and it's it's guesswork i guess um and again recording <laughs> this on october 11 2022 yeah so yeah. what is is there any take from your side putting you in your professional role at this yeah. moment
0: no 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 you know what um chris this is a thing you know i call myself right a specialist in russia all bets are off when it comes to this war i mean I could pretend to be all erudite and to make some prediction about it. Um, look, I'm a foreign affairs commentator who was wrong about Donald Trump getting elected, who was wrong about Brexit. As I tell my viewers often, I've sort of given up in the prediction business. Uh-huh. What I can, what I can do, and I'm not embarrassed to say that. I don't think it makes me an idiot. I can still call myself a specialist on Russia and say, I honestly do not know how this is going to play out because there are so many variables, mm-hmm. um, out there right now. You know, The extremes, okay, the extremes, unlikely scenario. Putin falls tomorrow. There's some internal revolt within his inner circle. Uh, and all of a sudden, you have some new leadership. However, that new leadership is not going to be more enlightened. The immediate people around him, the head of his national security service, the head of the KGB, Alexander Bortnikov, these are not enlightened people. These are people who, if anything, are even almost more toxic in their ideology than mm-hmm. Putin himself. So even if Putin were to fall, that's not some, in some people's cases, oh, that that's an ideal scenario. It really isn't. He might end up very much in the same or even more difficult place. Um, the other scenario, this just drags on. And on the winter comes, everything's frozen, frozen conflict, Russia's a world champion at frozen conflicts. There's any number of them uh, out there. Uh, you know, gas and energy prices go up. Europe loses its patience for all the fine words about the solidarity and standing by Ukraine. Uh, no, the populism rises, uh, more populist politicians start to get elected here in Europe. The public starts to get more focused, naval gazing uh, on their problems back home. Ukraine begun, begins to see more and more like yesterday's story. They're not hearing it every day in their headlines. So whatever, you know, is happening on the battlefield seems more and more distant. Uh, Some politicians will keep up the fine words, but in, in actual acts, it won't make much of a difference. I don't actually think that's likely either. I think there really is a new shift here and a new sense of real determination that it's, even Macron, Emmanuel Macron is saying, He's recognizing this is going to be more protracted and drawn out. The way he said with COVID, we're living with the virus. I think he almost sees us as living with this war against Ukraine for quite some yeah. time. Um, so I think there's a recognition of both of these scenarios of a long grinding war, which could be very depressing for all of us and just force a lot of changes in the way we do things. Um, and then there's a whole number of in-between scenarios. And I don't mean to sit on the fence, but I do think that sitting on the fence is really the responsible option here because I don't know how it's? I, I used to think that you know if I were a betting man, your smart money would net would be on never giving Russia the benefit of the doubt. That is, if you have your doubt, if you're trying to make a call in one of these conflicts, just don't give Russia the benefit of the doubt. But look, something, yes, yeah, something even in Russia, very unpredictable, could happen. Remember in the winter of 2011 or 2012, the mass. Street protests during the parliamentary elections, you know, tens of thousands coming out on the street. That was unprecedented. You know, what was going to happen? You know, even the pooch in Russia, which I was there for in August 1991, you know, the three-day pooch where Gorbachev seemed to be under house arrest and out of power for a while. There was this, this emergency committee of seven gray-suited men who seemed to have taken charge of Russia. Then it collapsed. Things can happen as quickly as they don't happen in Russia, which yeah, is why that's... I want... With, that's why I want to sit on the fence a little bit. Um, I do think Putin, no matter what the Kremlin spin is going to be, he is on the back foot. He is right now in a weakened position. No matter how much he wants to spin it, no matter how hard his rhetoric is going to be, no matter how much he lashes out in fury with with barrages of missile strikes in days to come, his actual battlefield and military situation is not that favorable. And I actually think if you had seen him in his recent speech before the, uh, the, the, the farcical annexations, the illegal referendums, and then those farcical annexations, you saw the people sitting in that room in the, in the Grand Kremlin, in the Catherine Hall, the Grand Kremlin Palace. Yeah, they were all clapping on cue for him, like as in a North Korean sort of, you know, parliamentary assembly. But behind them, you could also see that they were clapping because they have been, it's hammered into them, drilled into them. That's what you do in Russia. You do not defy Putin. You do not show any dissenter opposition, you do not let it flicker across your face. This was a captive crowd by commands. They had a captive performance. They had to do it. But I think a lot of those people, if push came to shove and Putin were to all of a sudden be really weakened and were to fall, they would embrace that. I'll just leave you with this one thought because there was a famous story with the old, the old former spy chief under Stalin of the Soviet Union, Lavrentia Beria. And Beria was perhaps the most feared person ever in the history of the Soviet Union. He knew everyone's secrets, including Stalin's. He was untoppable until one day in a Presidium meeting where Khrushchev was giving a speech. Khrushchev, they they saw that he was weak. They had planned this ambush in advance. Khrushchev... Uh, historically reportedly pushed some button, which signaled that the guards, the army and the military guards would all come charging into the hall, arrest Feria, before he even had a chance to realize what was happening. He was shackled, he was taken away, he was executed shortly thereafter. But the only way of doing it was literally that, was an ambush taken by Mm -hmm. surprise, because you couldn't do it alone. It had to be sort of everyone on board, everyone pouncing at once. But the whole attitude in that room, when they saw him being arrested, everyone was delighted it was like this giant burden had been taken off their shoulders and i Mm. sense that there would be a similar type reaction sure there'd be some genuinely disappointed people people who were genuinely wedded to the putin agenda who really like it who might feel shattered if if putin were to go but i think the vast majority would very quickly get used to a new russia
1: cool all right thank you douglas um as I prompted you before, can you give us from your experience, uh, professional or personal, uh, three tips to become more culturally competent?
0: Yeah, um, some of these might, <laughs> a couple of these might seem a few little cliched, but they've worked for me. Um, I think travel. Um, travel is, I know that easier said than done, you know, but yeah. I don't just mean travel, you know, buy your ticket and, and, and take a cruise somewhere. I mean, travel with your eyes and ears open. Do not go traveling um uh looking to find what you know to find what you're looking for go there um literally with an open mind travel to a place that maybe you don't quite know what to expect and be ready to change your opinion and when you travel you know speak to people uh in these mm-hmm. places a lot of people travel and they say oh i'm traveling and they think that just using the word and throwing it out there travel is a good thing you know because you're traveling okay i'm doing it you know whatever i'm doing that thing everyone says you're supposed to do to open your mind no it's travel with a capital T. It means mm-hmm. really being there, receptive, recep- receptive to the cultural uh, stimuli around you and 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 being open to things, open to the point of changing your own views. A lot of people come back from travel completely um, unchanged. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think, and here it comes, here's number two cliche, but it <laughs> really, it's a cliche for a reason, Chris, because it's really true. Yeah. Um, culturally, reading a lot. I really find that... Um, reading a lot of people I find just often just read in their specialty areas. Um, so, you know, you're a Russia specialist. So you read every new nonfiction book that comes out and is published about Putin and Russia. I actually don't read as much as I should nonfiction wise about Russia, perhaps. I find that the, 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 the most satisfying type of, from a cultural journalistic standpoint is to have a depth of different reading experiences. Mm-hmm. So I always try to make sure, A, I always try to make sure if you have the if you do speak several languages, I like to be reading something in French. I like to be reading something in English. I often read them at the same time and go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it makes your mind shift tracks a little bit um, on very different subjects. Yeah, sure, I love reading books about, say, old New York, time travel in old New York. You know, those are my sort of saw. I like that type of mm-hmm. reading, but I could at the same time be reading, you know, a book about uh, the the occupation, you know, in real time, written by. Uh, someone who died during the Nazi occupation of France, you know, Irene Nemirkovsky, Suite Française, you know, books like that. So have not just reading, but a diversity, a depth of different reading, if you can, different languages, great, different authors, different genders, mm-hmm. uh, different cultural perspectives. Don't just read um, within your uh, niche. Uh, get out of that of of that niche as as well. And I think the other uh, tip I would give people has to do with uh, routine, uh, cultural routines. And I think this is where things get a little harder um, because, look, routine is comfortable. We all get into routines. Sometimes routines, our daily routine is imposed on us in a way because we work long hours, we get home, we're tired, you sink into the same habits. I would say sometimes totally mix things up. Do things that, you know, spontaneously that you might not think of doing, you know, go to see a museum you know if you live in a a city where you're fortunate to have exposure to a lot of museums go to an exhibit you might not normally see you know, if you don't really necessarily, if you're not into photography or something, go to a good photography exhibit. Uh, Go, you don't like avant-garde art, maybe go see an avant-garde art museum uh, uh, exhibit somewhere. Um, Mm -hmm. You see something that, you know, see something that maybe even rubs against your grain a little bit. Break up your routine. You know, you always go to the same cafe and you sit there and you have your same cafe creme in the morning and you're there with your laptop and you know, you could be anywhere. You could be sitting in New York or London or Paris or Moscow or Shanghai having the exact same morning routine and yeah you're living in different places but are you really because you're in your like routine bubble do something that breaks you out of the routine where you sort of remind yourself of where you are the place you're living in and to take advantage of something that that breaks you out of what's what's your creature comforts what's just easy and comfortable to you do something that goes against the grain break your routine have a new experience it Spontaneously, go into a meetup group if you have a little bit of free time. Join an improvisation acting class. Uh, Join a sketching class. I did this a few years ago. I joined a sketching class. No, I I don't sketch, but I joined it. And then I ended up going on a few international sketching symposium forums. I went to one in Porto, Portugal, I went to one in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Fascinating, you meet people all over the world. They're not journalists, they're sketchers. But you break your routine, you find, this is interesting, I have a new interest. I didn't know I had this interest and you never would have discovered it push your comfort level, push the envelope a little, break out of what is comfortable for you.
1: I'm gonna um, let my partner listen listen to this one because we always tend to go to the same cafe. It's the either the red place or the yellow place or the blue place. That's how I identify them. Go to the green place. <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. I've, I've, I've recently introduced here on the street that there's as a cafe Emil, which we are not, not frequenting, but at least you know let's 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 do this. Let's take a left, not always the right. So I agree with that, Douglas. If people want to get in touch with you, how can they do
0: that? um there are several ways they could do it they could do it first of all on my uh work email it is d as in douglas just that letter d herbert no space h-e-r-b-e-r-t mm-hmm. at france24.com mm-hmm. so that's my uh, my professional address they okay. could also do it they could follow me on twitter i <laughs> am at doug not douglas just doug d-o-u-g-f 24 so no space just one word d-o-u-g-f 24. Um, I am also on, although I don't use it as much, I have a professional Instagram account um, and I I will give away my personal integra- Instagram if account here, which I, which I usually don't do, but I will give it to your viewers here. Um, it's an account where I often don't share work-related experiences. I use it more to share what I was just talking about, sort of cultural and out of work experiences extracurricular douglas experiences but i don't widely share it i'll share it now so i'm breaking so it is herodotus which is based on the ancient right uh historian and explorer h-e-r-o-d-o-t-u-s uh is it 34 i believe it's herodotus 34 if I got that wrong, then all of, uh, all of, you. I'll, I'll look, at, I'll to look it. it up. I'll, I'll, I'll so find it up. you there and then it'll and, be in the show notes. Eventually. I obviously, yeah, I don't look at my own, but I, yeah, it's Herodotus. I believe it's 34. I haven't typed it myself in a long always. time, but that, correct, that's I'm Instagram. And, and always also, uh, yeah, but a work email. I will also give one more email, which is my personal email, Douglas full name dot Herbert H E R B E R T at gmail.com. Mm-hmm
1: yeah first name last name at gmail.com with a dot in between
0: all right well thank you so much um
1: it's been one of the longest interviews i've ever, ever i've ever done <laughs> on my podcast that is but that, that's thank all right you, because as long as it's it's uh, it's interesting and it's uh, it, it, it I, and honestly as long as i like it i'm okay with it thank you Chris. all right it was a pleasure well thank you so much and i'm pretty sure we'll bump into each other in the future
0: not at the same cafe
1: thanks at the same cafe. <laughs> okay. okay. Ciao. Trying to stop recording. I'll cut it. I'll edit. It's, it's not sure. real. We
0: yeah. Sorry record. about that. It is. I think it is. I forgot my own uh, Instagram address. Let um, me. I'm sorry. We did go over. Um, I, I guess I rambled a little bit and sort oh, um, Let me. Let me see if I can.
1: It's. It's um, just not stopping recording. It's. <laughs> well,
0: no, I, I know. Stories. Yes, I gave the right one. It's Herotitus thirty four. Okay. Yeah. All
1: right. I'll have a look there. Okay. Well, anyways, if we if I hang up, it probably it it'll save the recording somewhere. Um, so thank you so much for for, uh, for doing this. Um, and I will I will give you a uh, I'll send you an email when this thing is live. It's probably going to be next week uh, Tuesday. Okay. Um, Wonderful. That's okay. my my publication schedule. And um, then I well, like I said, I guess we'll bump into each other in the future, and or I'll see you on TV, I guess.
0: I have one question for you, Chris. I just noticed I didn't want to say it during the live recording. I noticed that because I don't have the professional Skype. My Skype, at a certain point, stopped recording. You continued. I continued to see and hear you. I'm assuming it continued to record me at that point. It was probably about 45 minutes in. 45.
1: At this moment, it's it's still it's it's it is it says it's five.
0: Okay, it's the recording. Was, I, stopped,
1: I don't know where this file is yeah. going to end up, though.
0: I stopped seeing myself. I started to see you, you instead of me. And it stopped. Re- yeah, so I maybe because you kept recording, it's fine. Um, yeah. I just know that for me, it perhaps went down after 40 minutes because that's normally their cutoff, I believe, on, yeah. on Skype for private. I'll, I'll
1: see. If there's anything wrong, I'll let you know and, 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 and we'll see how we, how we draft this okay. to, to a proper okay. All
0: right. Very good. Okay. Well, thank you again. You take care. And Thank um, thank you. And uh, if you have any follow-up, just informationally, just ask me, you know, something you want to clarify um, or or whatever. No worries. Great. All right. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks for calling me. Thanks a lot. Pleasure. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.
1: Overlooking cultural differences when you're developing your business internationally can be the biggest mistake you can make. Let Chris and Peter help you avoid those mistakes. Get in touch now. Go to culturematters.com.